he told me he was an air observer, but he attempted to pump me. Now, what happens in the privacy of a tent in the middle of the desert is none of our business, but I think we can safely assume that the interrogation didn't go well. And welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we are looking at a Canadian by the name of Raymond John Frederick Shirk. Good name. Very strong. Very strong name. Who was a flying officer in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Now, quite an interesting life, this man. Mm. Both before and after. Seems to be quite a strong character to go with his strong name. But looking him up, I actually managed to find quite a reasonable amount on this man before the war, which was excellent. He was born... Born on March the 20th, 1922, in Waterford, Ontario, and had three brothers, Donald, James and Ben, which he seemed to have grown up with, mostly outdoors, swimming and canoeing and things like that, all these healthy, the Very Canadian Very Canadian, yeah, wrestling bears, I imagine, was Mm. there. Yes, and he spent a good deal of time being brought up by his aunt and uncle on a farm. Now, interestingly, he first joined the Canadian Army in May of 1939. And I guess because, obviously, by the time he would have been enrolled and gone through his basic training, it was fairly obvious that uh, ground-based work in Europe was not going to be particularly useful. Mm. He transfers to the Royal Canadian Air Force in September of 1940 and gained his pilot's wings in April of 1941. It was at that point that he came over to the United Kingdom in May of 1941, did his operational conversion training, and he joined 129. Nine Squadron at RAF Tangmere in August of 1941. He flew with that unit for nine months. Now, mostly that would have been protecting for the raiders that were coming across from France to do little coastal attacks in small numbers. I haven't got a huge amount of detail on exactly what it involved with there, but he transferred to the Desert Air Force in April of 1942 when he became a pilot officer, and he flew Hurricanes and Spitfires with 73, 74 and 601 Squadrons. Now, 601 Squadron is an interesting one because it's titled at the top of report that he was part of 601 squadron adgb and we've covered adgb before we have we have with dennis cowley in series three episode two mm-hmm. that is of course the aerial defense of great britain i'm not going to go into it in any major detail because we covered it quite nicely in, we did. in dennis's episode but effectively with the germans having air superiority we were very much in a defensive role but 601 squadron itself was actually quite a fascinating squadron and i looked up on that you'll like it because it was known as the millionaires squadron excellent and it formed Good. back in 1925 so a roaring 20s millionaires it, squadron it really was yes and bear in mind that the RAF came about in 1918 so mm. it was fairly new and looking into it any squadron that's basically formed in a gentleman's club in London by the name of Whites yep. <laughs> formed by a group of wealthy aristocratic young men who were all amateur aviators now they all had an interest in being part of the Royal Air Force but seemingly didn't want to go through the normal channels of doing so so decided to basically sponsor a squadron for want of a better word their entry test was interesting in that you were basically each individual potential pilot was filled with alcohol in the club and was observed to see if they behaved inappropriately and if they were inappropriate they were not allowed into the squadron whereas if they managed to hold it together whilst full of alcohol they became pilot officers in that particular unit so presumably this is on the basis that no gentleman would be inappropriate therefore if you're a gentleman you're worthy of being an officer in the squadron i believe so yes i believe so 
whilst it doesn't seem to be in print in particular, I think that is what is suggested. Nor would it be in print, even if that was the <laughs> Indeed, the, exactly. The now, there were some very interesting people through there, and 601 Squadron did not stay at that same level of individual, mostly due to horrendous losses in the early parts of the war, which meant that being replaced with more general personnel that came through, it became a very similar squadron to everyone else. But mm-hmm. it, it maintained the reputation of being the Millionaire's Squadron, because uh, it did attract some interesting individuals who we have heard of. Okay. So one of those with 601 Squadron was Roger Bushell. Of course. Who obviously comes up as part of the Great Escape. Billy Fisk, who won't actually be known through the escaping world. He was a very well-known Battle of Britain pilot. He was actually an American Olympic bobsled medal winner from pre-war. He was one of the first Americans to actually come over and um, serve in the Royal Air Force at the start of World War II. And he was one of the very first Americans killed on service in the Battle of Britain. William Rhodes Morehouse, he was an interesting gentleman, part of 601. He inherited £250,000 at the age of 19, back in 1933. That's just under £20 million today. Hence why they called it the Millionaires Club. Correct. And he was also sadly killed right at the start of the war as well. But the name that really did stand out to me that we will have come across is Whitney Strait. Yes. Who was in Series 1, Episode 3. Um, yes. With regards to escaping, he was also a 601 Squadron pilot. Fantastic. So some well-known people within there. But yes, yeah, so that takes us to Ray with 601 Squadron in the desert. Now, he was flying Spitfires out in the desert, and the day in question that we're looking at is the 29th of September 1942. Now, he appears to have been tasked with a ground attack mission, and his statement says, I left the landing ground at 1300 hours on the 20th. 9th of September, in company with two other Spitfires. It was a long-range strafing mission on an ammunition train in the vicinity of Charing Cross. Now, we all know that Charing Cross is in London. There's also one in Glasgow. Is there one in Glasgow? There's a Charing Cross I'm, in Glasgow. I'm, I'm, the end of Sucky Hall Street as you head up towards the West End. So, obviously, in a number of cases... Areas in the desert actually were refined to sort of maybe geographical references to oases and everything else, and they were not assigned. dissimilar in the Great Escape to Leicester Square and Piccadilly Circus. Correct, yes. So which were the stopping points within the tunnel. Within yeah. The tunnel, yeah. So in this particular instance, various areas, and this was a well-known rail junction. So you can see Charing Cross. Well-known rail junction, and that's where they're heading to. So with regards to this, Charing Cross was actually just outside an Egyptian coastal town called Mersa Matrua, if that's the correct pronunciation. And as he says, we did not see the train, so we can assume that this was an unsuccessful mission. Mm -hmm. He says, on our way back at about 14.30, we shot down a Junkers 52. Now that's a big three-engine German transport aeroplane. And he says, I've since learned that each pilot has been credited with a third victory. So all three of them must have gone into attack. This particular aeroplane shot it down and they've all been given thirds. Mm -hmm. This action took place near Charing Cross. So evidently their ammunition train didn't didn't spot it or it didn't turn up. So bad gen. At 15.15 hours, when behind our lines by about 30 to 40 miles and in the Katara depression, on switching over from my long range petrol tanks to my main tank, the engine cut out due to an airlock. I was flying at about 200 feet, and before I could do anything, I made a successful crash landing. That's quite gutsy. Spitfire doesn't glide particularly well. Yes, they would have been cruising. He wouldn't be carrying a huge amount of energy. So for that to stop, you're probably looking at a few tens of seconds, probably not beyond half a minute, to sort it out. So effectively, he's kept on going 
maintained a bit of speed and he's bellied it up in the desert. I blew up my IFF and called up the flight leader on the WT, so that's the wireless set, and got his acknowledgement. Now, the IFF is identification friend or foe, and it was a system in various parts of the world between lights and flares that, because obviously an aeroplane flying over may or may not be immediately officers to which side it's on, there would be colours for the day or a code for the day that you'd flash with morse on your lights and it would identify it. So that's exactly it. Now, the kit was still controlled kit and it had an internal destruct on it. So he's done this dutiful thing of destroying that precious equipment, shall Mm -hmm. we say, within the cockpit before he's moved on. And he's got acknowledgement that he's survived the belly-up landing. Leaving the aircraft intact and in accordance with orders, I took my emergency rations and started walking due east. About 15-15 hours, two Spitfires came over, but apparently I was not seen. Now, the following day, so the 30th, at 1,700 hours, when I had got to within one mile of our own lines, I was surrounded by Italian patrol and captured. I was immediately thoroughly searched and my watch and other trinkets taken from me. Now, how gutting is that to have set off across the desert with your emergency rations and walked for over a day Mm. and to get one mile from the lines and be caught? Yeah, I mean, we have seen similar instances of that before, especially in the desert where it's such an open oh completely plain yes you'd stumble upon anyone really well, well, friend or foe but unfortunately it's all too often foe well we have seen it before because Pam in episode 11 of series 3 same situation in the desert saw some UK vehicles went to those vehicles and realised they'd been captured by the enemy and whilst he had identified them correctly there was the wrong mm. wrong people sitting in them I was taken to the officer in charge who spoke good English and he retrieved my watch etc and had them parceled up to go with me he interrogated me in a rather rather haphazard manner. I'm quite sure what he means by that. General information rather than a specific Gestapo-esque light in the eyes. I get you. Matches under the fingernails type of interrogation. I get you. 1,200 hours on the 1st of October, I was taken by field ambulance as I was pretty exhausted to Army HQ. I imagine he's going to be fairly dehydrated. Emergency rations are going to be good, but obviously it's the end of the sort of summer. It's pretty hot out there all year round. And the Katara depression is notoriously arid. Ah, okay. Well, that would explain it. Having arrived at Army HQ, it wasn't long until Shark was to try and escape. In fact, he wasn't going to hang around at all, really, if he had his way. And he states, At Army HQ, I was interrogated by an intelligence officer who spoke good English. He asked numerous questions but did not press me when I replied, I can't say. So having been interrogated, his watch and rings were returned to him. But he does say that the guards were not very pleasant, which may have helped him decide that it was a good time and opportunity to try and escape. Mm -hmm. Or at least make his first escape attempt. So he arrived at Army HQ about midday. And by that evening, he says, I had to sleep with my guards out in the sand. During the night I attempted to slip away quietly but was discovered when I'd only got about 100 yards away. I therefore proceeded to fulfil the functions of nature and rejoin my guards without arousing suspicion. (laughs) So although he admits that he was trying to escape, he was noticed almost immediately. And so rather than trying to make a break for it in the middle of the desert, he instead tried to pretend that he was taking a leak. Yeah. Probably wise. Oh, very. But we're talking about within 12 hours of being captured and taken to HQ. He's already trying to make it away. So good on him. Good start. That's right. Yes. He's, a he's, statement of intent. That's exactly what I was going to say. So the next morning, he was taken by truck to El Daba and held in a small cage there and handed over to the Germans. 
Now, even in the desert of the north of Africa, we're seeing something of a pattern emerging that mm. is common with many other escapes. Because he says, I was interrogated by a German who said that he was a Corporal Barnes and a Red Cross official. Ah, are we going to see the return of this famous form? Well, if you bear with me, he was extremely affable and said he was only too anxious to help and that he had 32 forms to fill up on my behalf. He then produced a bogus Red Cross form with about 30 questions. When I only filled in my name, rank and number, he got quite furious. Oh. Now, we've come across that before. We have certainly, <laughs> indeed. He then showed me other forms which purported to have been signed by other officers, but I did not recognise any of the names of the people he showed me. It was at that point that his flying kit was taken from him and he was thoroughly searched, and during that search, uh, his belt with maps, compasses, etc. was all taken away. However, they didn't find a compass that was hidden inside a packet of cigarettes. Nice. He was then taken to a tent and relieved of his shorts. Now initially I thought this was a slightly odd detail. Mm-hmm. But then I kind of thought, well, actually, if you're going to make a run for it, not having anything Protective other than underwear, yeah. yeah, leopard skin or otherwise. Oh, yes, good reference back. <laughs> good reference back. Not having anything other than underwear on probably would discourage you from trying to make a run for it. Mm. Now, while being held in this cage at El Dava, there are some references to stool pigeons, and oh. there's potentially some evidence that there was stool pigeons. So I'm going to read from his report again. Okay. On the 3rd of October, the corporal discovered my flying suit was a German one. He threatened to have me shot as a spy when I still refused to answer his questions. Now, the reason why he could have been shot as a spy, at least it wasn't a completely empty threat, is because by wearing a German flying suit, it could have appeared as if he was pretending to be a German Mm. and therefore undercover. I get it. The corporal then said I belonged to 74 Squadron and had been shot down in Spitfire on the 26th of September. Now, we we know that he was in 601 Squadron and shot down on the 29th of September, but it's not totally uncommon for interrogating officers to give false information. The idea being that in response to, no, 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 I was 601, 29th, what are you talking about? Yeah. And in that way, they get the correct information they were looking for. Uh, So this is something of a tactic by the interrogating officers, but on this occasion it didn't work. And so he says he was then put into a tent with a man who claimed to be a South African lieutenant, who he suspected of being a stool pigeon. He told me he was an air observer, but he attempted to pump me. Now, what happens in the privacy of a tent in the middle of the desert is none of our business, but I think we can safely assume that the interrogation didn't go well. What really made Shirk suspicious of this supposedly South African lieutenant, he claimed that he was going to Italy in a Junkers 52, and that Shirk was a fool for suffering discomfort when he could easily just tell them something. Which is not a particularly subtle form of interrogation. It's pretty blunt instrument approach by this stage not mm. very good stool pigeon no however it is quite smart to claim you're south african because of course afrikaans is based upon dutch which is very similar to the german language yeah so it would be to an untrained ear it would be a relatively easy claim to make that there was some overlap there even if the interrogation is a bit blunt the subterfuge is at least a little bit more sophisticated yeah Yeah, absolutely. So at this stage, he was then handed back to the Italians and again was interrogated by what he describes as quite a charming fellow who said he liked Canadians and did not overly press his interrogation. I was taken out and placed in a tent with a man who told me he was pilot officer from Southend-on-Sea. He did not appear to be very well spoken with, but I did not suspect him at the time of being a stool pigeon. His knee was bandaged. He told me he flew Wellingtons and had been shot down, said they'd walked for nine days before being captured. He was able to mention my wing commander by name. In this way, he got from me the 
information that I was a pilot and that I'd walked one day prior to capture and that my squadron was 601. He also got a glimpse of my compass in my packet of cigarettes. Later the same day I was given to a German guard and on the way the German insisted on my producing my cigarettes and thereupon was very pleased to find my compass. From then on he kept his revolver cocked. Now, if I was Shirk, at this point, I would have been very suspicious of the Completely. pilot officer from Southend-on-Sea. Yeah. By virtue of the fact that having just told him that he had a compass and cigarettes, and then the Germans asked to see his cigarettes, I would have been suspicious at this point yeah. of this individual. However, he does go on to say that he was put into a compound with two other Britons. On the 10th of October, two further RAF officers were brought in, and then on the 11th of October, with about 20 other prisoners of war, they were taken to Derna. On the way, he met two further RAF officers, Flight Officer Don McClarty and Pilot Officer Trevor Hardy. And in comparing notes, we discovered that the pilot officer from Southend had been bogus. So it wasn't until a couple of days later when he got chatting to some legitimate RAF officers that he actually became suspicious of this pilot officer from Southend-on-Sea. Now, to be fair to Shirk, he was from Canada and would not necessarily know or recognise what a local accent from Southend-on-Sea would be. And so it wouldn't necessarily have been on him to to have suspected him. You know, you and I might suspect someone with a poorly spoken accent if they claim to be from Southend, because we're both from the United Kingdom. Correct. But being from Canada, he wouldn't have been expected to recognise a regional accent in the UK, and vice versa. No. I wouldn't expect to know a regional accent from Canada either. And he'd also, he'd been in the UK for less than a year. Exactly, yeah. He wouldn't have had the exposure. A couple of days later, on the 14th of October, they left Derna for Lecce, which is right down in the heel of the boot of Italy. Okay. So really far south, further south even than Bari, which is quite far south. And they spent the night of the 14th of October in Lecce. So they were sent to Italy about two weeks after being captured. Okay. The next morning, they were taken by train to Bari and quarantined for three weeks before being let into the compound of the camp there. The conditions in this camp were extremely bad with no Red Cross parcels and complaints were regularly put up to the commandant who said that he wrote off to his commanders in Rome but never received a reply. I have my suspicions on that, Mm. but... Nonetheless, conditions were bad. He even goes on to say that medical supplies were poor and the food was so scarce that cats were eaten by many. Blimey. So you you know things are bad if they've reached the point where they're resorting to eating cats. Mm-hmm. And it really does reflect that how just how poor the conditions were in this camp at Barry. In effect, he actually says that the complaints did not receive any serious attention by the commandant or his assistant and they were entirely responsible for a considerable amount of the privations of this camp. In the end, it wasn't until the following February, so he's been captured in October. Yep. Well, actually, late September, well, September. early October. Yep. But it wasn't until February, so five months after capture and th- throughout the entirety of the winter, that Red Cross parcels started to come through. And he says, at last I was able to change my shirt and shorts for a battle dress. Wow. Five months in the same clothes. Yeah. Through winter. North African clothes as well. Nice. Mm, lovely. Not long after this, on the 4th of March, he was taken by train to the camp at Solmona, where conditions were considerably better. And in actual fact, he became a member of the escape committee. Mm. Now, we've already seen that he tried to escape within hours of capture. Yeah. So he's clearly quite escape-minded. So he seems to be quite a good appointment to this escape committee. And I imagine that in his last camp, they didn't have the energy to even contemplate it. I very much doubt it. I imagine survival was primary. So as a member of the escape committee, he was responsible for copying maps and making clothes out of blankets. So two quite important roles. And he even took an active part in at least one tunnel syndicate, where two officers actually managed to get out of camp, but were captured and returned. 
Now, we've previously discussed the Italian armistice yes. in September 1943. Yes, we have. And so in Sherp's report, we have now got to the 10th of September 1943 and the impact of the armistice on his escape, which is quite crucial. So I'm going to go into quite a lot of detail here. Okay. Because he has quite a dramatic couple of days. So on the 10th of September, the SBO, the senior British officer, took over the camp at Solmona. On the 12th of September, the camp was evacuated completely this is the prisoners of war and they made for the foothills now this is against the stay put order correct right okay so the decision has clearly been made for them to evacuate the camp and head out into the foothills in direct contrast to an order that has been sent out which would have been sent to the escape committee of which he is a member right and this is where it starts to get interesting because on the 14th of September, two days later, the party he was in was surrounded by Germans and they started to be rounded up. However, he and the aforementioned Don McClarty managed to slip away. Right. However, they had no food or water and they hid in the woods until the 16th of September, another two days hence, at which point they were recaptured by the Germans. Okay. However, later that same day, they halted by the side of a mountain. Now, there were about five other ranks beside the two of them in this party, so about seven of them in total. And McClarty and Shirk asked the German guard if they could head over into the shade of a nearby rock about 25 yards away. The guard gave them the permission to do this, but at a favourable opportunity, after leaving a cap on the rock as a decoy, they rolled down the mountainside and hid in some scrub. Now, a search party was sent out, but managed to pass them by completely. So although they're now free again, they still have no food and water, but they have at least managed to get away again. On the 19th of September, so we're talking about another three days after they've made their escape from being recaptured, he and McClarty ran into a Palestinian and four Arabs, all of whom were escaped prisoners of war. Now, they must have stood out in the middle of Italy. Yes. And they told them that they had met some Italians who had advised them to make for the village of Rocca Casilla, mm-hmm. which was about 10 kilometres away from Solmona. So all of them headed off in that direction and lived in a cave and were looked after by the villagers and were to stay there for a fair amount of time, actually, a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. So they lived in the cave for a couple of weeks in the mountains overlooking this town of Rokokosia. On the 6th of October, the village was surrounded by Germans again. So in the context of the overall war, by this point, the Italian armistice has taken place, it's been signed, the Italians have withdrawn and sided with the Allies, and the Germans have moved into Italy, taken over all the camps and are now going around rural Italy trying to round up the prisoners of war who have already escaped yeah and already on more than one occasion we've seen that shark has been surrounded completely by the germans so having been surrounded while living in this cave he states a shepherd guided us up a mountain track and in the mountains we met war correspondent krieger a south african of dutch origin and lieutenant rockberg an Austrian Jew. This is starting to sound like the start of a joke. I know, right? Because <laughs> we've got the Palestinian Arabs, <laughs> a Jew and a war correspondent. Exactly. All well, going to a cave. <laughs> so by this stage, having slipped away from being surrounded by the Germans, being guided through the mountain tracks by a local shepherd, he'd been on the run for a further nine days. On the 15th of October, they headed in the direction of Campo Basso. So while in that vicinity, they stopped overnight and actually ended up staying for 
for three days. And during this time, the guide who had taken them through this mountain track had gone off with Major Cochrane, who was the senior British officer at Solmona, to try and make contact with the Allied lines. Okay. Now, this is where the armistice plays quite an interesting role in the immediate aftermath, the mixture of how former prisoners, former guards all interacted. Because he actually goes on to say the camp Italian medical officer was also there and busily engaged in organising escapes. Really? Yes. Right. So, a yeah. former guard is now trying to help them escape the Germans in the middle of a mountain track in the Italian mountains. Get you. Yeah. War plays funny. It does. <laughs> it games, it doesn't does. it? However, once again, the village that they were encamped near is surrounded and the Germans start machine gunning the village. And so Shark and his party head into the woods just in time and manage to slip away again. So this is now the third time that they've been surrounded and the second time they've managed to slip away because, of course, they were captured the first time. Yeah. And even once they managed to get into the relative safety of the wood, they then heard that the Germans were combing through the woods. So his party once again left, walking south. Southeast, and for five days they walked until they arrived at Capello on the 23rd of October. Now, Capello's on the east coast of Italy, and they were to wait there for a further two days until the 25th of October when a guide came and took them and three others towards the Allied lines that, of course, were advancing north. And it was the next day on the 26th of October that they managed to reach the 1st Canadian Division and from there were taken back to Campobasso and from there they were taken by truck to Foggia where he saw his old squadron. So 45 days after his initial escape which he had spent avoiding capture in the wilderness of Italy and being guided through all these mountain tracks and hiding in caves and mm-hmm. being surrounded three times by Germans and being machine gunned. After 45 days, he finally makes it back to the Allied lines. Wow. And makes contact with the 1st Canadian Division, which I'm sure as a Canadian was a welcome Welcomed. return to a familiar accent. Yes. And from there, he was flown back to Barry and then took a train to Toronto, flown again to Algiers where he fell sick and was to stay there for a little while before eventually returning to London on the 13th of November via Gibraltar, almost two months to the day after his initial escape. Yeah, so he actually got recognised for that escape attempt by okay. being awarded the Military Cross. Oh, excellent. And the citation does list that uh, after two years of service, this officer's continuous determination and devotion to duty, which I think we can quite honestly say is very correct, mm-hmm. and it details about his crash landing 30 miles inside enemy territory and being captured and remaining a prisoner in the hands of the enemy. So good recognition for this escape. Although, doesn't end there, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. So, whereas normally we've seen that people have returned to service, in this case, Ray does also return to service, but in a different squadron this time. Okay. And he is posted to another Canadian Air Force squadron, which is 401 Squadron, in the February of 1944. So he's evidently been given two or three months rest, and that was flying Spitfires again this time from Biggin Hill. Now, at this point, obviously, they're preparing for sweeps into France ready for D-Day, mm-hmm. and they're gathering lots of information, and they're shooting up trains and various defences to pave the way. And it's on one of these such missions over the Pas de Calais that he runs into a bit of trouble again. Mm-hmm. So we wind forward to the 15th of March, 1944, and he takes off from Biggin Hill to escort some marauder bombers which were twin-engined, medium bombers, Mm -hmm. to an extent, for a mission on the Pas de Calais. And he writes, On the way out, my engine failed. I do not know what this was due to. I had to fly through a good deal of flak, and there were also fighters about, so it may have been that my engine was hit. Obviously, he wasn't aware of what it was. Mm. It came as a surprise to him. I bailed out at about 10 o'clock and came down near a wood about three kilometres northwest of Beaumont. Now, 
I looked up where this was and where his crash occurred, mm-hmm. and it's actually Beaumont Hamel okay. down in the Somme, and he parachuted down between the Hawthorne Ridge and Beaumont Hamel, which, if you're into your First World War history, is the national park for the Newfoundland Regiment okay. on the Somme there. So right. if you're familiar with your <laughs> military history, you know the area very well. So mm. Hawthorne Ridge is one of the big mine craters that went off on the 1st of July. And the links again to yet another Canadian mm. <laughs> division. But very fitting that a Canadian should bail out and land so close to a memorial to a Canadian regiment. It's... Yeah, it's uncanny, isn't yeah. it? It is uncanny. I rolled up my parachute and ran for the woods. Some Frenchmen had seen me coming down and by the time I reached the woods, one of them had caught up with me. He thought at first that I was a German, but when I told him that I was in the RAF, he helped me over a fence surrounding the wood and buried all my flying kit under a tree. He then whistled to his companions and about six other Frenchmen came up to me. We started running, and as we went along, I took off my RAF battle dress jacket, and the first farmer gave me his jacket to put on. When we had gone about a mile, we stopped. I took off my flying boots and RAF trousers, and my companions gave me civilian ones in exchange. Now, I haven't come across this before, that they are so helpful in that first instance, because effectively we're probably 20 minutes to half an hour, and he's already completely changed his clothing. Well, yes, that actually occurred to me, and there was actually two points that occurred to me on this one, because, first of all, we're talking about the 15th, March 1944. So we're talking about less than three months until D-Day. Now we know that by this stage the French resistance, particularly in the north of France, so we're talking about Pas de Calais area that the bombing mission he was on took place. Now okay the invasion didn't take place then, Mm. but the French resistance all across the north of France was on red alert. Mm. Which you can kind of see in this because quite clearly they are very, very well prepared on the expectation that a pilot may well be shot down. We of course are a podcast about prisoner of war escapes. Now there's two key points that I made in that statement which is first of all looking at prisoners of war so they have to have been captured in the first place and second of all escaped so by virtue of being captured they then get away again. Mm -hmm. However there is another subsection within the overall narrative stroke historiography of this subject matter which is the evasions which is of course when they were never captured in the first place and there were thousands who were shot down or behind enemy lines that were helped to evade back to the UK. If you ever look into those stories further it is far more common that you do see this assistance being provided relatively quickly. The reason why we haven't seen it so much is because we don't focus on evasions, we focus on escapes who by virtue of being captured do not tend to receive this assistance. I get you. But it is relatively common in an evasion. So having within half an hour, as you say, already changed his entire appearance, he's even given an additional berry yes. uh, hat, which really is just the definition of assimilation in northern France. He's just it? missing some onions. Exactly, yeah, and a stripy jumper. So having been given a berry, so of course he fitted in perfectly, mm-hmm. he was then kind of left to his own devices by the farmers, and he just kind of continued on through all the local villages and heading north. Now at this point, some young boys had caught up with him, which as we've seen in previous escapes, earlier in the war having a bunch of young lads following you around is not usually good news it's a bit risky it is a bit risky but of course as I said we're heading in towards D-Day the resistance are on red alert and in actual fact it wasn't to prove deadly Mm -hmm. so he, he states I stopped at a house and was given some food and something to drink one of the boys and I then went into the fields and remained there until three o'clock in the afternoon when two men arrived so clearly they've put him in contact they've kind of taken him to hide Mm. clearly they've taken him off to a field to hide him while some of the other young lads go off and find some adults in the area that are able to help him out and these men then took him off to a house
house of a woman who spoke very little English. And while he, he'd never find out her name, he did find out that both her husband and son were prisoners of war themselves in Germany. So clearly there was some sympathy with his situation. Yeah, and it. she was willing to help him out. So he was to stay in this small village, Hebutern, for a couple of days. And while there, he met a Roy Carpenter of the United States Army Air Force, who was sheltering in a nearby village. And on the 27th of March, they were both taken to Bordeaux. Now, what the report doesn't state, but we managed to find out as part of our research, was that in actual fact, they were arrested at Amiens, which is not too far. Mm-hmm. Hebutern to Bordeaux is about 700 kilometres. Amiens is very much in the north of France. Yes. So probably gone less than 100 kilometres at this stage when they were arrested at Amiens. However, Shirk managed to slip away and still managed to catch the train just as it was departing. Oh, in perfect timing and so from Bordeaux he was taken first to Dax by a young French boy however decided it was too dangerous to continue on and he and the young lad separated Mm -hmm. he then continued on by himself walking to Bideray which is on the Spanish border about 70 kilometres south of Dax at Bideray he approached a farmer telling him that he was a parachutist and at first the farmer was unwilling to help him however once Shirk showed the farmer a piece of parachute cord which they kept on them the farmer kind of changed the tune and said he was more than happy to help and see what he could do for them. So he took them to the farmhouse and he and his son then took him on to see a friend of his where they stayed for a night and the following day who introduced them to a guide who could take them through the Pyrenees. Right. So we are, to, we are right on the Spanish border by this stage. Yeah. On the 5th of April, they crossed the frontier into Spain and spent the night in the mountains. And the, and the next day, on the 6th of April, 1944, the guide left them with an old lady who took them on into Arazu, which is about 20 kilometres from Bidere. We're now in the Spanish mountains, but on the Spanish side of the border. Having arrived at Arazu, she immediately handed them over to the Carabinieri. However, they weren't interrogated beyond giving basic details of name, rank and number. And they managed to exchange a 1,000 francs for 60 pesetas and were able to spend that night in a hotel. The next day they were escorted to Pamplona and while the remainder of this report doesn't give too much details of precisely the route he took, based upon his journey thus far, it is most likely he was being guided by the Comet Line. Mm-hmm. On that basis it is likely that he then travelled on to San Sebastian and then either to Bilbao and then on to Madrid or else directly to Madrid from San Sebastian. So we're in the Basque area of Spain and from Madrid he would have then continued on south to Gibraltar, returning to Whitchurch on the 2nd of May 19. 19- 44. So roughly a month and a half or six weeks after being shot down and of course imminently before D-Day. Yeah, useful. Yeah. Very useful. What an amazing man. And it didn't really stop there. I mean, what was wonderful about this, I found loads on this guy mm-hmm. and it's absolutely superb if i end up having a, a later life like he did and living to his age i'll be very very happy now he never forgot the work that went on to help people get out of mm-hmm. occupied europe so he was actually the founding member post-war of the royal canadian escaping society which he dedicated to recognizing the extreme efforts and risks taken by families who assisted downed airmen escape or evade capture and it's said that he kept in touch with all of the people who had helped him Mm-hmm. for the rest of his days which I think is absolutely wonderful but obviously you know pre-war he was an engineering student and was studying and post-war whilst he stayed in uh, effectively like the Canadian Air Force Reserves he did go back to finish his study and mm-hmm. his training and he qualified as a chemical engineer at the University of Toronto and then went on to complete postgraduate studies in commerce he then moved into teaching and lecturing because he lectured in maths and science and eventually was recruited to teach finance 
finance at a polytechnical institute. He dabbled in business as well, and he formed a glassblowing company, randomly. Okay. I'm not quite sure where that had come from, whilst doing his engineering degree. But also, on the back of his chemical engineering, he sold chemicals to the pulp and paper industry. He obviously enjoyed his time in business, because before he eventually retired in business, he co-founded the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. So Excellent. I think he was fairly switched on. Mm -hmm. And even when he retired, he then set up working in real estate in Toronto. So okay. here was a guy who obviously didn't want to... He wasn't work shy. Highly driven. Highly driven. Now, as I said, he had stayed in the reserves and he actually continued to fly. And indeed, he worked as an instructor during his summer breaks from lecturing students in Toronto. Excellent. Um, he flew air shows. Okay. And I found a reference to him flying one air show where he also carried out a demonstration using live ammunition from an aeroplane, which I think is just fabulous and would certainly not get past the regulators today. He did also teach his daughter to fly and he continued to own and fly his own seaplane until the age of 91. Fantastic. And he used to take it out fishing and hunting. Excellent. Which was brilliant. He was actually recognised in 2001 by being made a professor emeritus for recognition of his life of outstanding academic contributions. Now, he had got married, but if you remember that war correspondent that he met... In the, the Italian mountains. In the Italian mountains. Yeah. That war correspondent actually went on to introduce him to Heather, who would become okay. his wife. So Brilliant. Nice, nice little uh, return. And it does back up, I guess, the fact that he stayed in contact with everybody who mm. had been involved with his escapes previously. But I did find a rather nice line to draw this to an end on, which was about the man himself, because we rarely get to know... We, we can draw conclusions about mm. what these people are like, but to actually get a quote from someone who knew him and she said that ray appreciated and enjoyed the simple pleasures in life and had a generous nature always helping others in need he was a modest man with many interesting and unique life experiences he was a mentor and a role model and his remarkable life was an inspiration to all those privileged to know him which i thought was wonderful um ray died peacefully aged 94 in toronto in december 2016 Wonderful life. What I find really interesting about him is we saw that he tried to escape within hours of being captured, which does give us some insight to the sort of mindset and attitude and personality that he had. But having then effectively fled the camp after it had been abandoned by the Italians and then been recaptured and actually making quite a gutsy escape once again, his escape was to take him through what would have been quite serious hardships and hard Hmm. mountainous terrain and he was to survive for a month and a half in that environment was surrounded by the germans on three separate occasions made it back to allied lines but was to then do it all again almost yeah now we have seen before with anthony dean drummond someone who has escaped and escaped again and so far as we're aware he is the only person to have done that hmm. however this is the first time we've seen someone who has escaped and then actually successfully completed an evasion post-escape through occupied Europe and did it in the immediate prelude to prelude to D-Day. So at a point when the entirety of occupied Europe was at a heightened state, he's still evading through Europe. Now we haven't dealt with evasions before much at all, but I was absolutely fascinated to see someone who had completed an escape and an evasion in under a year at a point when the war was at its absolute height. So September 43 through to May 44, we're talking about some of the most tense months of the war. And during this time, he's escaping and evading through occupied Europe. I think that's absolutely fascinating. It's the first time we've come across this. I, I agree. What an amazing man. Fantastic escape and evasion. 
Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.